Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. The international break has all but come to a close. So we're here to discuss the major talking points from the international window as a whole. I'm Jack Collins and I have a very special guest joining me today in the form of Felipe Cardenas, host of the Copa podcast of this very parish. Felipe, it's a real pleasure to have you on here. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to get started. Lots of games to talk about. Oh boy, lots of rants to get through, I'm sure, once the fans start jumping in on this on the stream. But yeah, it's going to be fun. Good show. Good show ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. And there's lots to talk about, as you say, loads to get through. We're going to be talking about the South American giants, Brazil and Argentina, about where Mexico stand ahead of this World Cup, about England's struggles under Gareth Southgate and plenty more. But Seems like there's only one place to start today with the USMNT after their two games in Europe. First, that loss to Japan in Dusseldorf, uh, and then the very recently finished nil-nil draw with Saudi Arabia in Mercia. Uh, simply put, I'd say, Felipe, this break has been uninspiring across both games. No goals, a real lack of attacking cohesion, a real inability to create chances. I thought against Japan, the USMNT were, well, to put it bluntly, out for, out thought, out coached, and outplayed. It wasn't quite as dark today against Saudi Arabia in that regard, but it wasn't good either. And this was a rotated Saudi squad from the one that finished ahead of Japan in AFC qualification. There are various caveats, which we'll obviously get into, but overall, I think this is a hugely disappointing showing across the two games. It is, and, and I think any country, it doesn't matter if you're a world power or a dark horse or a team that is in the World Cup for the first time, you, you do the last thing you want to do is end your final window, your final camp before the World Cup with poor performances in the U.S. That is where they are. Now, now they're going to have to spend the next 55 days or so answering questions about their performances against Japan and Saudi Arabia. Are they up for it against a Welsh side on November 21st that, you know, honestly... You know, we may not think great things about Wales. Maybe they're not a sexy team, but man, I, I think they're going to feel really confident going into this final match, this this opening round match, the first yeah. group stage match against the U.S. Uh, and and listen, I mean, if you just just glance at Twitter, and 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 it's it's a firestorm right now about for everywhere from the coaching, the players, the attitude from the U.S. team. Uh, I thought today against the the Saudi Arabians. Yes, they check the box that, hey, we need to be more competitive and we need to be more intense and we need to play uh, for 90 minutes. Okay, so they, the U.S. can check that box. The players can go home perhaps satisfied that they did that. Uh, but nothing came of it. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to beat, like you mentioned, a, a, a B-side of the Saudi of Saudi Arabia, yeah. missing top players for them, right? And this is a team that we all know finish above Japan, but it's a team that you need to defeat. You need to beat them. You need to feel good about yourself. And it was just a drab affair overall. I was telling you before we start recording, Jack, that in the 68th, 69th minute, I'm th I forgot the game was on. You know, you're trying to watch other games. You're checking in. And you, I looked up and I'm like, it's still 0-0. Nothing's happening. So tough, tough result for the U.S. as they head into these fi this final stretch leading up to Qatar. Yeah, I mean, if there are you kind of strands to grab onto in some ways, <laughs> the last time that the US failed to win their two tune-up games before a tournament was 2002, right? And I think that well, one uh, that one went yeah. okay. But, um, but, but I mean, it is grasping at straws a little bit. And I think that's kind of the, the point we're at here with this team because it, it's a lack of cohesion and it's a lack of, you know, attacking capability. And, and yes, there are players missing. And, you know, I suppose we should probably come on to maybe the most notable one, which was Yunus Musa, because I thought without him that 
the midfield looked incredibly unbalanced. And Weston McKennie and Tyler Adams, especially in that first game, looked a bit shell-shocked, I thought. Yeah. Is this just a reminder of how important he's become to this team and this system? Or, you know, Kellen Acosta came in today, I thought did better than Luca Della Torre did in that first game. Obviously, it's slightly different opposition. It's a slightly different game. Um, but it gave Weston that chance to get forward a little bit more. And in the first half in particular, I thought he was bright. Yeah. But it just feels like the, the midfield balance is off. And that's a major, major concern. It's a huge concern, especially when you're going to go to a World Cup. You've need, your spine has to be set. I mean, you can have problems and issues at the number nine. I think so many countries are going to have questions about who's going to be their goal scorer. But if your spine is an issue, uh, it, it's a big red flag. I, I agree with you. I thought Wesley McKinney was, was so poor against Japan. And tonight against Saudi Arabia, he was very loose. He was all over the pitch. He was getting on the ball. He was getting forward, running into space. Uh that was a bright spot. But you mentioned Yunus Musa. He's a very special player. My concern, though, you know, I, I, I saw him live against Mexico and Cincinnati, that World Cup qualifier, and I was just blown away, just in, in, immediately enamored with his ability and his confidence on the ball in tight spaces in central midfield under pressure. My only concern is now it's like, we're expecting him to be the savior. Well, you know, what happens in, in, in Qatar when he's yeah, another young player that yeah. has never been at this level. And I think that is my, that's my biggest takeaway from the window is that we've, we've, we know it's a young team, but now they're acting like it. Now they're acting like, and they're, they're playing like a young inexperienced team against opposition that they may not be as good, or they might not have as many players in Europe, but they're professionals just the same. And their experience at Japan is a very experienced side, very experienced yeah. side. Saudi Arabia, a top coach on their sideline that has been at to multiple continental tournaments. Uh, and Greg Berhalter's never coached in a World Cup. And so you, you couple that with the youth of the squad and you're running into these tiny issues that are blowing up in everybody's faces. But just one more time about Yunus Musa. Yes, big miss. He's a big miss. They they were not able to figure out that hole with without him. I thought Kellen Acosta was okay in the first half, but then yeah. he just fell off. He could not just out of the game. Yeah, he yeah. completely drifted out of the game. Uh, Tyler Adams stepped up. He had a performance, which I remember him having in Mexico at the Azteca, where he was just cleaning up everybody's messes. Uh, but he's not a number six that's going to distribute, dictate tempo, get on the ball, turn out of pressure. And so when that happens, the U.S. is just very limited. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've touched on it there a little bit. And I think the, the big debate that, well, not even a debate, I would say the big, the kind of sticking point on social media has been the manager and and, and whether this is, is going to be good enough. And and ultimately, it does look a little bit in this regard that, you know, the fate is already sealed unless the U.S. pulls something quite spectacular out at this World Cup. Now, Bohalter has has had his ups and downs with this side, but it does just look like, you know, tactically, there's a lot of players limited. There's a lot of players frustrated. There's a lot of players who are playing within themselves under his system. Right. And that's never what you want to see with a manager on an international stage. We've seen, you know, managers pull teams out of the hat, you know, at this point and, and bring them together to be more than the sum of their parts. And it feels, I think, that the US are, are, are less than the sum of their parts at the moment. And that has to come down to the coach. Agree, agree. And and having Christian Pulisic as a starter today didn't do that much. I mean, yes, he was, he, he, you noticed him. You always notice Christian yeah. Pulisic, but he wasn't the difference maker that that I think even Berhalter was expecting or the fans were expecting. Yeah, that, that's a big criticism right now of Greg Berhalter, who I, I felt has grown in the role, um, you know, coming from the club level to the international level. He's had some big wins with this with this team. Okay, he had a great summer in 2021. 
when everything was against him as well. And but you're right. There are times when they play poorly. You really you look at a team that it's as if you're trying to fit the players to a system rather than fitting the system to the strengths of the players. Uh, and I look at the side right now. They want to be a technical side. They want to they want to play. You know, they want to play. And they're not always able to do that. And I think at the international level, and especially at the World Cup level, you depend on your players to solve those problems when your game plan doesn't go as you thought. Last night, I was on a press conference with Tata Martino, the Mexico coach. We're going to get to him, but he just said something that that applies to this U.S. side. And that's what he said. He's like, listen, sometimes you know, we have a game plan and the tactics don't work. But the last thing you want is that you're, you're, when that happens, you still want your team to be competing. And he was referring to the Peru win, which was a drab affair. Yeah. But he's like, in the end, we won because our players didn't quit. We just we leveled the playing field by not losing our competitiveness. And I see an uninspired team when I look at the U.S. You know, I don't see guys running through fire for their coach yet. You know, I see a team that they're together, but I don't see this fire that's typical of a U.S. side at a World Cup. And that's that's my last point before we move on is that, you know, we, we talk about this team being a golden generation and all the players being great and being at the at club level, at the top clubs around Europe, playing Champions League. But I could name four or five U.S. teams that were much better than this club. And they didn't have guys playing in the Champions League like this team because they were experienced players they, they had the, the know-how and the resolve and like that American grit to get through games against top opposition. And like I'm looking at this team and I'm like, yeah, they have some good players, but I'm like literally concerned they might not get past Wales and Iran. I mean, we're not even talking about England yet. But now it's like if their confidence is not at a high level, once that anthem plays, it's going to be a tough run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a tricky group, and it's it's, it it's a tricky group kind of across the kind of board. I think, and maybe when when this got drawn out the hat, people would have looked at me like, okay, that's not it's not impossible. But it Iran, was a good draw. Know, exactly. When it came out, it was like we're fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Iran, you know, under Kados, looked like they're well drilled and, and organized, yeah. and, and Wales have been on the up for a while, and 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 mm. so it does look like that. I enjoyed this question uh, from Raul Baratha, who said, "More disappointing from the USMNT, the kits or the oh, last two games?" That's um, a great question. I still think I'd have to go kits. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know what? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go the last two games. The, the I, I even thought about this last night. Like I, the the white kit, the home kit, which I don't, I don't like. I don't hate though. Uh, I saw the other day, uh, like a Ricardo Pepe in some promo, and he was wearing blue socks with the white, white, blue, and I was like, you know what? That looks that looks okay. Like I can. Yeah. But the, these two performances, I mean, they could be wearing Brazil's uniforms, and it was it was just like it was awful. Like that is much much more of a concern than the look of the team, the fashion of the team. Yeah, no, of course, of course. Um, look, we'll talk quickly about the injury concerns. Obviously, Anthony Robinson's out. Eunice Moose has been out. We've talked about him. Pulisic missed that first game. Gio Reyna prematurely replaced in his second game. But the players brought in to replace them hardly raised their heads above the parapet and went, yep, yeah, I need to be in this selection. Do they? You know, Sam Vines in that first game saw precious little of the ball in the final third, which is kind of where you want him to excel. Luca Tellatore, as we said, worked hard, but to limit effect. I thought Joe Scali did all right in the second half yeah. today, to be honest. Mark McKenzie looked shaky. It, it does worry me that, you know, you're looking at these players and going, right, make your case. And, yeah. and you know, we've seen some of the comments afterwards from Beholter saying, oh, these players, they're worried about, they're worried about selection. They're worried about being on the roster. That's not what you want to hear because you no. want players to be like, I'm here to make my case for the roster. Never mind, you know, in the players on the fringes, you're going, okay, 
put your hand up and show me you want to be there. And, and we saw precious little of it. Yeah, that, that's another concern. I think there's a big, a large section of U.S. fans uh, that aren't as impressed with the side as, as other groups, as other, you know, I think factions of the U.S. men's national team fan base that are very enamored with the, with the quality of the player, the individual player, Gio Reyna, Pulisic, Aronson, uh, Musa. They're going off their, their weekend performances for their clubs. Of course, that's going to inspire you. But, you know, I think if there's st- the, the, the men and women that are starting to come out and say, maybe we're not that good. You know, maybe our depth is a concern. Uh, you know, now, now those calls are getting a little bit louder. And, and again, against opposition that you should be better against when your depth doesn't improve the side, uh, you know, it's, it's a concern. Now today against Saudi Arabia, I thought some of those, you mentioned Joe Scott, I thought there were changes that elevated the side a little bit. Uh, and, and they were never out of this game. You know, they were, they were never out of it, but they were never in fully in control either. Uh, you can look at the stats and the XG and all, all you want. It just felt like a very even game. And it felt like a game that Saudi Arabia probably should have won. Honestly, mm-hmm. they had better chances. Yep. Uh, but the nervousness, that, that anxiety that you that you bring up again, I go back to the to, to the coaching staff like that is a that is a mentality management issue. Uh, from the staff like uh, your players are always going to be nervous uh and and i get it like you you might get cut like last night again <laughs> to bring a tata martino he was like he's dreading that day he said he said it's going to be a very a day full of injustice is what his quote was when he has to choose the final side and cut players and so clearly burhalter is at that space too but if it's to a point where it affects your team twice in a row like I almost honestly couldn't believe he said it again post game. Like it's yeah. like that's still a problem. <laughs> like you should have solved that in the three days you had after Japan. Yeah, and if if it should have been a problem in the first place, you know, obviously nerves are normal. That's fine. You can mm-hmm. be like the players are nervous. Your job as a you know a head coach is is partly motivational. It is right. to make sure that players know that you know they have the freedom to go and express themselves. Like you can make a mistake if you can you know, and but that's okay. These are the warm up games, but we want you to make a show of why you should be included in the squad. It's, it's about you know proving yourself as much as not making a fool of yourself, I suppose, in some ways. And I'll say as just a devil's advocate as well, because you brought up a player like Sam Vines. I thought he w- he just looked very limited against Japan. I know he's playing well in, in Belgium, uh, and there aren't a lot of left backs, left fullbacks, uh, natural left-footed fullbacks for the U.S., so you have to bring him in and see what he gives you. Uh, he wasn't poor, but you just he, he was unnoticeable. You know, he, he didn't yeah. impress, and then he's yanked today. I actually felt like it was a good decision by Greg Berhalter to, to – move Serginho Dest to the left fullback side uh, in place of Sam Vines and then put a veteran right fullback in, in, in Yedlin uh, on the right. Yedlin isn't a top, top player, but he's a very experienced player. Okay. And so like, I think when you see your team folding a little bit, lacking the energy, lacking confidence, bring on the experienced players. Like yeah. that's going to elevate the side. And I thought those were good decisions by, by Greg Berhalter. Uh, in the end, there were other decisions that are going to, be talking points for the next few months, starting Ricardo Pepe, giving him that confidence. And he was completely just ineffective at all. Um, Isolated. (laughs) You know, just, just isolate lost Clinton Dempsey on the telecast at a great point saying he wasn't stingy enough. He was giving the ball not away in turnovers, but just plain simple, like not taking anybody on, not owning the situation to your point about if you're a fringe player, you know, show us, show us that hunger. And so those were disappointing as well. 
I mean, it takes us on, I suppose, quite nicely to the to the point about the players that weren't selected within this camp, right? And and so Jordan, obviously, the big one that people were talking about beforehand, but but Tim Ream as well, you know, at centre back, who's had such a wonderful start to the year with Fulham and and has been sensational, to be honest, in in black and white, um, close to my own heart for for, for quite <laughs> some time. Um, but I suppose the questions then go, you know, if Pepe, who, you know, and I thought Clint Dempsey spoke about him quite eloquently beforehand to say, you know, he's the man who's got you here. He deserves a chance to, to show what he's worth. And I think Agreed. that's a completely fair point. Yes. Um, but then you look at this and you go, OK, in games like this, do you need a player like Jordan, who is a game breaker, who might not start? Right. But he's not necessarily the same profile of forward that Greg Bohol uses. And I think that's a good thing. I think a lot of people have kind of picked that out as a, as, as a bad thing. But like, oh, it doesn't necessarily fit the style. But you have a game like today where nothing's working and you have a player like Jordan, who is a different mold to these to, to the rest of the strikers. Can you throw him on as a kind of kitchen sink maneuver to be like, if it is nil nil with Iran with 10 minutes left and you need a win? You know, do you throw on a, a player who's going to do the same things that have been happening all game and haven't been effective? Or have you got someone who can change things up? And I do think that Jordan offers that different dimension. Yeah, I mean, Jordan Pifak, it's hard. He's, he's you know, he's the Landon Donovan of the 2014 World Cup team. That was He was left off that squad by, by Jordan Klinsman. He's the Chicharito of this this Mexico side, you know, very likely not going to be part of the squad. You know, that player that you're like, how, how do you leave a player like that? off um you know i think it just comes down to a coach that doesn't rate the player a, a coach that may think yes he's scoring goals I, I i i'm impressed by that i value that but within the system this is where coaches get very uh it's not even their ego it's just like it, they're stubborn in in their ways and in their beliefs uh, when it comes to the ph philosophies and the tactics uh you know jordan pfock hasn't had great performances in the past with the u.s like that's that should be noted um, he's elevated his game since uh, with, with Union Berlin. Uh, but I think right now he isn't the player that fits the system. And, you know, you could argue if we're going to nitpick, you know, Jesus Ferreira, who I agree with, you know, isn't the nine, maybe, you know, he's not a traditional nine, but he came on today, first touch, shot on goal. Yeah. Um, and, and that was from a couple changes were made. Ariola was there. He's, he, you know, he presses well. Uh, he's not a technical player, but he gets those loose balls and he's, he's, you know, he's unselfish as well. So, but yes, you know, I, I, I look at the, 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 the strikers for the U S and I've said this before, they, they look like they're going to have the deer and headlights look in Qatar, you know, especially when they're not coming into form with their national team beforehand. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those sections of the team that the, the, the lack of experience is, is, is just obvious. Uh, and, and you wonder like how much they're missing a player in that position. That's like a Clint Dempsey. Like they mentioned on the telecast, Josie Altador, who, you know, he's still like trying, he's trying to get in and Burhalter loves him too. Burhalter like loves Joe's. That's like the prototypical striker for him. But, um, you know, it, it's a concern. And, and you mentioned Tim Ream. That's a great point because I was thinking this during the game, you know, Miles Robinson out for, for the, for the season, for the year, missing the world cup, big blow, honestly, a big blow. Yeah. But even he's not the solution here in the back line either because he was important because, Hey, the U S is going to play a high line. He's very athletic. He's tough to beat even in one week on situations. He allows a lot of the team to get forward, but I, I see it now as like a football issue. It's not an athleticism issue. It's not one where we need a faster center back. We need a player that gets it 
that understands the game, that's going to read the game well, play under pressure, play out of pressure. And, you know, that sounds like a guy like Tim Ream, honestly. Like, I don't know if he's the guy, but it certainly sounds like he fits that profile. Yeah, I, I thought, interestingly, quite a lot of the, the best things in the U.S. first half today came from those kind of through balls, those diagonals from, from Walker Zimmerman, who mm-hmm. I thought had a decent game. Um, much better. That than, was relative, yeah. yeah, much better than the, uh, the yeah. last one. Um, but that is also Tim Ream's bread and butter, or has been in the championship at the very least for Fulham. Now he's had a good start in the Premier League as well. But, you know, watching him kind of spray the ball around at the cottage for the last you know however many years Mm. has been you know a delight and he is one of those players as you said that can play out of the press who isn't he isn't worried under pressure yes there's the odd mistake in there but generally is kind of forward thinking and and attributes in terms of actually being on the ball are majorly important and then to have another center back in there who could do the kind of thing that Zimmerman showed today which was a genuine weapon in the arsenal I just think would be something to that worth having for Bahar at this camp especially with the experience that Reem has and just, just, yeah, just experience. Like he's a guy that would wear the armband and I think do a great job. Like just give that presence in the back line and the spine of the team. Uh, you know, it's, it's a big question mark for, for Greg Berhalter because it, it seemed kind of cool, honestly, to, to be the youngest team at the World Cup. Now it sounds like it's might be a big, big problem. And, and, and there, is, there aren't a lot of players that you can pluck from the U.S. pool right now that are experienced and that are playing well. Uh, you know, I don't think at this point around the world we're going to see many managers make these sudden surprises and bring in these yeah. players that weren't part of the process. I just don't see that happening. And I, and I would lump Greg Berhalter in here as well. Like, I don't see him being like, okay, fine, I'm just going to bring in, you know, a player that hasn't been part of this process for the last two or three years. Yeah. But, you know, in, in case of emergency, maybe you do you do think about that one spot, you know, the one spot on the back line where, you can rely on a player that may not be the most, the, you know, the fastest center back, may not be the the most athletic, but the way that these games may be played uh, in Qatar, where you're going to have to control possession and 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 possibly just like be in the game consistently, Tim Ream is a good option. Now, I'm, I'm literally, I might cancel what I just said because what what another takeaway from Japan and Saudi Arabia is that these games are a, a lot about uh, speed. Um, and and sort of just like being a formidable opponent for 90 minutes. You don't have to be the best team. And that is another red flag because the U.S. for so long has been the team that can match a bigger side with their effort and their endurance and their stamina. And I yeah. felt like, especially against Japan, they were just like, they, they didn't know who was in front of them. You know, and Japan is always that team that they have quick players all over the pitch. They're very smart. They're very organized. But even today, Saudi Arabia kept up with the U.S. the entire time. They weren't outbodied, out physical. They weren't outpaced. Again, you know that 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 doesn't bode well for World Cup play. That's going to be at the highest level that this team has seen. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Completely agree. Do you like Formula One, but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Um, Let's leave the US for now, although we will 
come back to them. They will come up again in this segment and flip over the Atlantic to England, who had another strange international break. 1-0 loss to a weakened Italy side, had tongues wagging again <laughs> on social media before, well, it was a pulsating 3 all draw yesterday with Wembley. It did allay some fears, I think, if not all the fears. But I think with England, there's as many questions as answers been thrown up by this break, which is not ideal, really. But England are now six games without a win, a run that stretches back to March. And for a team who've got to the semi-finals and final of the last two international tournaments that they've been in, it's a funny place to find themselves, Felipe. It is, and, and it's obviously we know that Gareth Southgate is just taking it taking the brunt of the criticism. It's gotten bad there as far as the support around the manager. But, uh, you know, looking at that game against Germany, you know, I was tweeting during the game saying, like, this team, this England team, is just plainly obvious that they lack confidence. And I think when a team lacks confidence, you look at the manager, you look at the staff, like that is a reflection of what the, the, the coaching staff is asking these players to do and what and perhaps what they're asking them to not do. And I see England and I'm like, look at all the talent. Like, look yeah. at the talent around the field. Like, once they get going and that the engine turns on and they start humming, they look like a team that could really you know, do damage at an international tournament. And to your point, they have. They've, they've played really well. But it looked like in the first 45, the first 65 or 70 of that game against Germany, it was like they had handcuffs on. Like, why, why, I would ask you, like, why... Why are they so conservative at times when they have these players that can break space, you know, take players 1v1? Uh, it, it, to me, for the first 75, the U.S. fans, you probably saw it on Twitter, were like, I'll, I'll take this England team, <laughs> you know, like, you know, of course, like we can play them. Uh, and, and that that was bizarre because I think the personality of the side is much different. Well, that game has nil-nil draw written all over it right now, it doesn't really it? Does. Um, but I think look, there's a lot of questions over stylistic matters with Gareth Southgate. There's that insistence on playing five at the back. There's a lack yes. of attacking thrust. I don't think there's much surprise, or at least I wasn't surprised at all, over the fact that England were much more exciting and dynamic once they were 2-0 down and had to go for it and it kind of had nothing to lose. There's an interesting balance to be struck here, I, I think. On one side, it's on genuinely painful at times to watch England grind out results when, as you say, there's such an excess of talent or attacking talent in this squad. And on the other hand, tournaments are often won or at least done well in on the back of defensive solidity first yes. and foremost. And given Southgate's record at these last few tournaments, why would he change that? So the question becomes, I think, how do you strike this balance? What is the balance? Because... England fans might be complaining right now, but if they got to the final, the semi-final of this World Cup playing this style, I think those questions would be slightly to the back of people's minds because, you know, as soon as you start actually getting some success, and look, there, there, there'll always be questions about the fact that would England have won the Euros final against Italy if after going 1-0 up, they had continued to press the accelerator. There have been questions about the similar task against Croatia in the World Cup semi-final last time out. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they were two of England's best results in international competitions for you know the best part of decades, three decades. Yeah, yeah. So you know it kind of is one of those where it's easy to criticise Southgate and it's easy to criticise England, and I have done on various occasions because I just don't find it that enjoyable to watch. But equally, it's kind of working international news, and they often are. You know, you know, you think back to the great sides that you know lit up international tournaments you look at you know that danish dynamite team the the dutch total football team that brazil side um you know in, in the 80s how many of them actually won and the answer is very yeah, few of them they, they, <laughs> they end up losing all... when they have to win exactly 
So that there is always that question as well. Is it, is it worth completely giving up on these things if if it has done well in tournaments and we know that defensive solidity can come through? That's that's where the kind of balance, I suppose, needs to be struck. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think the modern game has become so much about control of, of the you know control possession, control the game, dictate the tempo, don't get beat in transition. Uh, and you know, I remember when the when the squad came out for this window for England, there were twelve defenders, <laughs> and I was like, "Why do you need twelve defenders? You know, like what what is going on?" The midfielder was like, "It was it was one line, Four. yeah, just a block," <laughs> and then the defenders was like six, this huge like six line block of players. Uh, and so I agree with you. It's tough. Like I think you can ask the most attacking minded coach. And in the end, they, they, they don't want to get scored on either. You know, they don't want to be in a shootout. Some coaches may be more comfortable with that. Perhaps Marcelo Bielsa uh, yeah. is one of those. But, you know, the risk is much higher to, to just completely blow the game early. Uh, you just not you're not going to see that at the international level. You're not going to see that at a World Cup. You're certainly not going to see it from a, from a coach like Gareth Southgate. But, uh, you know, questions should be asked. You know, the, the, when the players that he brought on against Germany, should they be starting? Like, were they rested? You know, what was the game plan to face Germany? Was he, did he give, you know, did he give the protagonism that England perhaps could have against that German side? Did he just sort of hand it over to the Germans and say, let's see what happens. Uh, looking at that game, you know, I still have big concerns about Eric Dyer. Like I know we haven't touched on Harry Maguire yet, but let me, let me start with Eric Dyer. Like it's a player I like, honestly, like I think he can do a lot of things in different positions. I know he's been in the central midfield at times as well, but he's right now he's looking like a player I would attack if I'm an, an opposition coach. Um, and if you remove Harry Maguire and put someone else in, that's a little bit stronger, faster, like Tamori, perhaps, well, now I'm definitely going to single out Eric Dyer. So it's not like the back line is just completely solved either because you have, a five-man back line. So uh, I, I don't know. I thought England, when they came back, they looked like England. They looked like a side that perhaps I wouldn't want to see in the group stage. Uh, but there's two sides of them, right? There's two these two faces of England that you're not sure what you're going to get. Uh, and in the end, you know, Gareth Southgate perhaps walked away at the 3-3 draw saying, well, you know, we didn't lose. We came back. We fought back. Uh, you know, mission accomplished, if you will, other than getting relegated. But I'm just going to throw it back to you, Jack. I remember yesterday watching the game and the, during the game going off into space thinking like, what is the point of the nation's day? Like, what is, what is, what's really at stake here for England? Because you know what's at stake in these friendlies, you know, the, the, the image of your team, the reputation, the roster and all that. What was England playing for yesterday? Well, I suppose considering the relegation had already actually happened, Correct. It was it was it was exactly as if it was a friendly, right? That that, that yeah. that's the same thing. I think the Nations League is a really good idea. Um, now I don't think it necessarily plays out in the right way. I I really like it for what it offers to the you know the the nations lower down the pyramid. I like it for the fact that we saw North Macedonia at, the, at their first ever Euros because they came right. through the Nations League playoffs. I think it's a good thing to allow teams to play teams around them in order to try and build their you know build games against teams that you can actually be competitive against rather than watching England beat San Marino twelve nil in a, in a friendly you know between international competitions. I think it's a good thing I, I don't know how much it means to players um especially at the very top and i don't know how much players are desperate to win the nation's league trophy although mm -hmm. there was a pretty heavy fitch invasion when spain beat portugal tonight to send themselves through the last four so um you know that's maybe maybe it is meaning something more these days obviously tournaments take time to you know to 
gain gravitas and and all of these things but i think on the whole it's a good thing um but yeah i completely agree with you in that obviously it didn't matter to england yesterday it was exactly exactly as if they were playing a friendly it this was about pride and getting into gear before a world cup it wasn't about the fact that it was the last game of the nations league i think you know what i, I disagree with you on dyer i, I thought i was really? all right i thought yeah. Dyer was okay um I think he's <laughs> had an okay time at tottenham this year i think in the in a back five or a back three he's fine um, he brings a lot of aerial threat. And look, and you asked me six months ago, would Eric Dyer be starting for England at the World Cup? I would have laughed at you and told you he wasn't even going to be in the squad. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a hell of a redemption arc. But, um, you know, across the course, I think that England have bigger problems than Eric Dyer. And I'd be very surprised if he doesn't start in that first no, game now I because think it's just where we are. Yeah, um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, Harry Maguire is obviously the big question. And actually, it kind of feeds into the next point, which was, you know, something I thought was interesting is perhaps actually there's more striking similarities than you might think between Beholter and Southgate you know both under <laughs> pressure from their respective fan bases not only because of tactical inflexibility but also because of sticking with their preferred players in the face of unimpressive form and potentially more intriguing options and I think that that takes a nice kind of you know similarity across the course of this and you know Harry Maguire has become the face of this in England wow. and and ultimately you know Harry Maguire is a good player who's in terrible form now is yeah. he a good enough player to be a starting centre back for Manchester United different question but he's definitely a good enough player who has been in terrible form for his club Southgate's argument was that he had never let him down for England which was a fair point because he never had across the course mm. of the last two tournaments he's been immense and Harry Maguire himself said I wasn't playing before the Euros and I was in the team of the tournament you know here's what I am but sure. I do think of late and especially in the performance yesterday Southgate probably was let down a little bit by Maguire and I think that he's probably feeling the heat feeling the pressure and and this is a man who's who's under fire from pretty much all quarters and mostly I feel a bit sorry for him oh I I do too I mean I I don't like to see I I even said that like watching a player self-destruct in front of us is never you never want to see that you know like uh, I can't imagine especially with social media today this sort of uh, that anxiety that the players go through when they don't have when they have a poor performance, but especially when the the spotlight, the mic, the, the magnifying glasses on a player like Harry Maguire, clearly been dropped by hit by by Ten Hag at, at Manchester United, uh, and and Manchester United got better, uh, and, and so I, I think that is the question: is will Gareth Southgate, you know, die on that sword, die on that hill, you know, for you will, yeah. for for a player like Harry Maguire? Uh, which will just be, you know, incredible, uh, an incredible story if it works out. You know, if, if England plays well here, Maguire plays well, the back four, the back five is just completely solid. Uh, you know, how many miles is Southgate going to shut? Uh, it's going to be incredible. But the, the doubts are there. You're going off the, the latest performance. And it wasn't that, you know, he, both but the, those two goals to start were, were, came from Harry Maguire. I mean, he gives up the possession, gives up the penalty, completely schooled by a young, bright, attacking player like Musiala. I mean, that is; those are the guys you're going to face at, at the international level. Like, all of a sudden, they're in front of you inside the box, 1v1, and he couldn't handle it. Uh, then he gets adventurous, which he, he's never been an adventurous center back. He gets adventurous. He gets the, you know, He loses possession. Uh, and it results in another goal. So it, it just was the, the worst script for him uh, because of the pressure he's under. And if it were me, if I were Southgate, like perhaps I back the, the player publicly, privately. Uh, I mean, when is the next time? Is the next game 
against Iran? Is that it? Okay, well then this is it. Now we're in we're we're in the end game now, as they say. So honestly, I would not doubt I would not be surprised to see him, but it's just going to be the the focus is going to be every touch, every decision that he makes, that Harry McBarr makes. And if and and I, I thought this against Germany, you know, it's like if I if you're the manager, it's almost it's almost better to 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 keep him in the lineup against Iran. Okay, let's keep him. But if he has another game like he did against Germany, then you're going to get a lot less flack as a manager if you make the change in the second game, right? So perhaps that's perhaps that's the decision making on on Gareth Southgate's part. I think it's fascinating, Burhalter Southgate, Burhalter Tasa Martino. I think they will forever be linked as well. They're very similar in how they stick to their guys and they they they're they're very stubborn in their ways. But it's interesting how the three managers that are most talked about in in, in the United States, Burhalter, Martino, Southgate, now they're all under the same hot seat. Like the pressure is on. It's incredible that it just happened all at the same time. Like it's, it's, it really does just fascinate me how these three coaches show up in guitar. Uh, and if they can inspire their teams to play better. Yeah. I mean, and, but if they can't, as you say, there's a, there's a lot of pressure on these three heads now. And, and it means it makes sense for us to move it to Mexico. Now, you know, they won their only game so far against Peru. They play against tonight against Colombia, but Mexico feel like they're not quite set either. You know, I mean, what's the situation here in terms of expectation and where this squad are? We've got used to Mexico being a stalwart at World Cups. This is, of course, their eighth consecutive appearance. They've got to the round of 16 in each of those eight. But this is a tricky group with Argentina, Poland and Saudi Arabia. Where, how does this sit? What is the kind of expectation within, you know, the, the Mexican fan base? No, it's not good. It's not good. Uh, and not just the fan base, the media. Overwhelmingly, there's not a lot of confidence in the Mexico side. Uh, and you mentioned before, they're a team that when they get to the World Cup, they just perform. You know, they hear their anthem and it's just like they lose their minds and they just play. You know, like it's it is honestly pretty incredible to see that happen. Uh, it's interesting that when Tata Martino was hired in 2019, the whole purpose was like, OK, he's going to get us to that fifth game. You know, they've never gotten past the quarterfinal round. Uh, you know, that, that is it. Like, that's where we're going. And now it's like, there's, the, there's Raul again, quinto partido or bust, you know, like the fifth game or like another failure. And honestly, the narrative is now, can we get out of the group? Like, can Mexico compete with this tricky, difficult group that looks pretty wide open, especially for the second spot? I mean, I think Argentina, the clear favorite, but you know, uh, it's going to be between Poland and, and, and Mexico. And that's the opening game. That is like a, World Cup final for both teams. Uh, so confidence is low. I think Tata Martino continues to support the players, support his process. I think of late, he has been more and more transparent, even pushing back a lot on the on, on a report, Mexican reporter saying, you know, you told me that I don't bring young players. Then he'll literally list 17 under 23 players or under 21 players that have been part of his process. Uh, he recognized that they're not scoring goals well, but he will point to other things that keep them in matches and that oftentimes is how you play in a world cup you know i i see a team that is not a great mexican team they're not bad they have players that are pretty good and they're playing at, you know at the top level in their club some guys like edson alvarez who i think is going to be one of the best holding midfielders in europe you know the next season honestly uh chucky lozano is has dropped his form at napoli but he's just he, i said it the other day i think Mexico are lucky to have a player like that. Like he is tireless. He is aggressive. He's adventurous. Uh, and he can finish a game for you. So 
uh, they have a veteran goalkeeper in Guillermo Ochoa, who is honestly like a World Cup icon because he shows up at these World Cups and he has like incredible performances. So the spine, the base is there. They just have been uninspiring. And, and, and we've talked a lot. That's been pretty much the plot of this podcast. So uh, it's no surprise that it's just another team that is struggling to find their form. The big concern tonight facing Colombia, a Colombia team that didn't qualify for the world yeah. cup, but everyone understands like, wow, like I, I think it too. Like, I think this might be Mexico's toughest match in a while. Um, you know, a Colombia team, nothing to lose, new coach, new process, young players coming in and out, still have James Falcao, Luis Diaz will be there. You know, if, if they, if they pull out a win, a two nil three, one win over Mexico, we talk about pressure on Gareth Southgate and, and Burhalter. Well, I think at this point, Tata Martino has just accepted it. Like he called himself public enemy. Number one recently, he knows it. Uh, and he's just trying to keep the ship afloat. And that, that is the big problem for Mexico, that the toxicity heading into Qatar is off, off the charts. Yeah, I mean, Martin says in the comments that I think hiring Tata was a big mistake considering he coached in MLS. I mean, <laughs> that's hilarious. That, that is a hilarious take, Martin. I mean, there's another guy in, in The Athletic. Great. Thank you for subscribing. I think his name is Janya. But he said that the same thing. He's like, we need to stop hiring coaches from, from MLS. Of Tata Martino's probably twenty year coaching career, two years were in MLS. Okay. And he like changed and they, and they were incredibly successful. He revolutionized the league. Um he he took Argentina, which were comp- just a stacked team with Lionel Messi, all these the greatest players of, of that generation, the two consecutive finals, couldn't win them. Uh, but you know, he he can coach at that level, took Paraguay to a quarterfinal in twenty ten, playing one nil ball, basically. You know, just let's just pack it in and 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 fight. So he did that with Paraguay. Uh, and, and listen, he took on Mexico that I think a lot of people around the world are, are saying, like, why would you take that job? Like, that's the that is really the takeaway from this four year cycle under Martino. So, yeah, the MLS jab is it's going to it's going to continue to be there. But it's it's just it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, Tata's well-respected in the game, you know, and, and yeah. mostly, I'd say, his teams have always played with a certain joie de vivre, maybe that Paraguay side aside. Um, but yeah, the, you know, they've only scored more than once in their last five games, that 3-0 win over Suriname. It's not quite as joyful as perhaps we expected. Um, right. But going into a tournament, is that the worst thing in the world? Or is that actually fitting preparation? Because, you know, how many how many World Cup games do you watch that end 3-4-0? Very few, Very you know, well. the actual games are usually tighter and a little bit more extreme than, than we expect. So is this actually a good thing to be playing these kind of, you know, grind out games? And we've talked about that Peru game. Is that a relatively sensible thing to be doing and watching, you know, playing against a side who play in that exact kind of style? Because that's what you're going to come up against. Absolutely. It's an excellent Excellent point. I think that's what Tata Martino was trying to communicate last night to the reporters. They were just the question after question, barrage of questions. And all week, the Peru match was terrible, boring. We weren't creative enough. An uninspired performance. Uh, our, our number nine got nearly had no touches. And Henry Martin, who's going to be the forward? And Tata spun it to a point where he said, Okay, so the first 30 minutes, we controlled the game. We were all over them. We just couldn't finish. And then, yes, we we sort of handed control to Peru, who honestly parked the bus in the first 30 minutes. Uh, but to my point, what I said before, the game became a physical, like it looked like a South American World Cup qualifier. 
And Mexico didn't back down. They they kicked, they grinded, they won their duels, they earned free kicks, they score on a set piece after pressuring Peru to get that corner kick. And it, it's a one-nil victory. And when it was over, I had the same thought, Jack. I'm like, well, that that's like a, a group stage win right there. Like you take that and you take it to the bank. Uh, and and going back to Tata Martino's history, what he did with Paraguay, it, it, I think it's sort of you're starting to see that if he feels his team needs to play that way, and I think he will definitely need to play a back five defensive against Argentina in that second game, there's they're going to be drilled to know how to do it. It won't be Mexico's never had to sit back and defend. Uh, you're right. It's not an adventurous team like it was in 2019 when he took over. They were exciting. Yeah, uh, they they could put goals past people, and and they now you know, they were fun, right? And so, but I agree. I, I think that might be a blessing in disguise. Can can you grind out victories at a World Cup stage where it gets very cagey, it gets very tactical? Uh, a lot of these games I've watched the, over this window have been like that. Have been extremely cagey and uh, and just you know, other than Brazil, who won today five one, you're not you're just not seeing the chances. So. But you're right. There's a, the biggest concern is like the, they don't have the players, Mexico, to break open a, a low block like they thought they had. I think that's been a realization. We're like, well, well maybe we maybe Chucky Lozano, you know, he really does need a runway to beat you. He needs to play as a as a counterattacking, uh, you know, wide player. They don't have a ten. They don't have a guy that's going to slice and dice and, and just break open guys. So it does become much more of a technical game where they may have to find their chances. So, yeah, they have a coach that knows how to win that way. So perhaps that is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe a great time for Diego Laneth to step back up again, wouldn't it? I mean, that, that oh spell at Betis has broken my heart. But um, I'm, I'm glad he's at Braga because I think that's a good place for him. And, and maybe, maybe it is a place where he can rediscover some of that form. But he's the guy that the the Mexican players, or I'm sorry, the Mexican fans and the media are just clamoring for. Why don't you play him? Why doesn't he start? Like, this is just my internal theory. I think Martino is just holding him, holding, holding, holding for the World Cup because he has produced for Tata Martino. He's come on and played well every single time. Like in the very few starts that that he's given him, and they were low stakes games. They were the Concacaf Nations League games against, I think, Suriname. Um, you know, he played well when he give, brings him off the game, off the bench. I'm sorry for a five cup final against the United States over the summer last year. Came on score just changed the game like he was just like that's why he is considered the future of the national team you know yesterday tata martino was asked about the starting lineup who's going to play against colombia are you going to play the same system in qatar and i felt like he started to say you know he started to give away some without giving too much weight. he's like listen we're not every game we play we're not preparing for poland every game we play i'm not thinking about november 22nd um yes we may play five in the back Maybe we will play the same system that I've been playing, but the mo- the moments belong to the players. Like he's sort of saying, like I might have a trick up my sleeve. And in talking to sources around that team, they've said multiple times to me, Tata is going to have to get creative when they get to the World Cup because the team isn't humming yet, and so it's going to have to be something perhaps unseen. And and maybe that is more opportunities for a player like Diego Linus. 
Yeah, perhaps he's Tata's ace in the hole. Um, right, well, you just mentioned them there, but I think we've tried to move on from unimpressive sides. Uh, we should probably mention two teams who seem to be in a really good rhythm. Um, the two South American Bayamots of Brazil <laughs> and Argentina. By my mark, Felipe, they're far and away the two teams I feel are in the best shape of all the big guns across the world, if you will. They feel together, they feel unified, they feel on song. Squad's incredibly deep and talented. And I think it's great, frankly. Uh, it's 20 years since Brazil won in Yokohama. And since then, we've had European domination, Italy, Spain, Germany, and France winning. Argentina in 2014 are the only non-European team to even make a final in those 20 years. I think it's great for the game and for the neutral for us to have a strong South American showing here. I mean, we're recording this prior to Argentina's final game of the knockout stage, so it might... Uh, of the knockout stage? Of, uh, of this international <laughs> you've got, break. You've, I've you've gone, already I've, put them there. I've them gone there. on there, yeah, yeah. Um, so it might not be as rosy by the time people are listening to this, but as it stands, Scaloni's men on a 34-game unbeaten run. They're looking fine, Fettel. I love this midfield pair of, of Lo Celso and DePaul. Um, incredibly <laughs> dynamic as eights in front of Paredes or, or Guido Rodriguez. It doesn't really matter. Um, behind and to anchor things. And Leo Messi, perhaps against some of the odds, back in scintillating form, back playing some of the best footballers for it. It's all looking really, really good. Argentina is, and just again to quote Tata Martino, because he was asked about Argentina, a team that he knows very well and a team that he'll face, which will probably mean qualification or elimination for Mexico. And the way he described the team, he didn't even talk about the football. He just said they look like and they're playing like a team that knows eventually they're going to win the game. You know, maybe the game doesn't start exactly how they want or, you know, maybe uh, the, 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 the opposition is defending in that low block and you, you automatically, you know, this is going to be a long night. But Argentina just knows that they're going to win and they have a spirit within them. They have a confidence within them uh, that honestly is just so telling to me. This is a team that was the, uh, they were pariahs in their own country because they couldn't win finals they couldn't win co the Copa America final in 2015 and 2016 successively uh despite the stars and the talent that they had and they were losers in their country which if you ask many Argentines they might agree I've talked to many over the years that say that's an unfair judgment on the team that gets you to finals that played in a World Cup final in 2014 as well uh perhaps in the VAR era Iguain earns a penalty when <laughs> Noor yeah. cleaned him out in the box right uh, but Lionel Messi said recently in an interview, what's the difference between those teams and this team? And he said that we won the Copa America. Like we won a title. That's the only difference. Like it, it sucked away all that negativity, all the anxiety of having to lift a trophy while I'm still playing. Uh, now, but you mentioned certain players that I think have been crucial to this new squad, which, you know, Lo Celso, just such a classy, clean central midfielder, left-footed, doesn't put a foot wrong ever. Uh, and Rodrigo DePaul to me is like the unsung star of the team. Like without him, it's a different team. Like he is, he can play for, I think 120 minutes and be cool afterwards and still, you know, not even be tired. He'll run all over the field tackle. He's a Cholo Simeone product, like the, the, the ideal product and profile player that has played for Diego Simeone. So that's it. To me, I see a team that just has everything right. Even players like Pesela, who plays for Real Betis, who was sort of a liability in the Copa America last summer. He, he remains a liability for Betis, I'll have you know. <laughs> but it's interesting. Again, it was against Honduras. But I, I watched him a lot because I'm like, oh, I remember Colombia went right at him in the semi, that semifinal of the Copa America. Like They just put Luis Diaz on that side and said go. And he couldn't contain him. And I don't know. I saw a player that 
uh, was a lot more composed uh, against Honduras, played simple, won every single tackle, uh, and was well positioned, you know, for a counterattack. So they don't have a lot of questions, but I think Leonel Scaloni, their manager, is still trying to figure out like who do I take. Uh, you know, I think he has a squad, but because you're given ex- three extra players in the 26 man squad, I think a, play, a, t- a coach like Scaloni is like, which area of the field will I need to fortify in a dire situation? I think he's going to look at midfield and perhaps another striker. Uh, but you know, again, you mentioned it before. Even a team like Argentina that has all this attacking talent, they won the final, the Copa America final against Brazil, sitting back and defending for their lives. So that might be a place that he wants to strengthen. Yeah, I mean, it's quite an interesting defensive core. Obviously, Christian Romero, Alessandro Martinez, Herman Pazella, as you say, and then uh, Martinez Cuarta, who plays for Fiorentina. So there's there's a relative amount of depth there. You know, you can you can look at them and go, they're four players playing for clubs who you know, our, our Europa Conference League level or above. Um, and that's a nice Definitely. thing to nice thing to be in the kind of mix with, I think. So um, it's been a, a problem area, obviously, for, for many years, but it doesn't feel like it's quite as much of a problem uh, anymore. And, and I think that that's a nice thing. And, and as you say, you know, where, where he looks to kind of strengthen with these extra three players, you know, does that mean, you know, Alexis McAllister and, and Tiago Almada go? And that, those are the big questions that they well, kind of sit over this now. And that's, you know, these are nice problems to have. It's yes. not a, oh my God, are we going to draft in another centre back from absolutely nowhere? Are we going to draft in someone who's never played with this team anymore? You're wondering with Argentina if they bring, you know, maybe the hottest young talent in MLS along along for the ride, even if he doesn't play to just give him that tournament experience. You're wondering if uh, you're going to bring Alexis McAllister, who's been brilliant for Brighton this season. Yeah. These are nice selection dilemmas. Alexis McAllister reportedly will start tonight against Jamaica. I think he's earned it. I think he's a very good player, very interesting option in central midfield for a team like Argentina that, you know, I think he's much more direct, uh, more of a 10. And if you want him next to, if you want him in place of LaSalle, so you're going to be a, mo- a lot more aggressive. I feel like I think he wants to get up field, uh, but he has the technical ability to, 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 to sit and, and, and just distribute as well. I think he's a very good player. You're right. I mean, what a luxury to be like, you know, should we give Tiago Amada the experience of a world cup, you know, knowing that he might not play at all uh, knowing that he's, part of the future of this of this nation uh, but that's the talk in argentina because he comes on against our against honduras and immediately shows his quality connected very well with Lionel messi uh and and, and so now it's like would would they do that i, I i'm still leaning towards no I, mm. I still think scaloni won't won't make that decision i think he'll he'll look at what we just discussed in in a, in a very important match experience will will, will matter more uh, but it's difficult to, to 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 have a player that is completely fearless in Tiago Mai. He doesn't care who he plays against. He's just yeah. going to go and play, and that can be a great option in a World Cup as well. So, uh, yeah, they're they're really well rounded. I think that's you know a year ago, the criticism of Scaloni was that they played a style of football that was just very improvised. Uh, that was the big criticism, but during the Copa America that they ended up winning. Uh, and, and since then, if you watch them play, they know who they are. You know, they, 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 they know how to use Messi and how not to overuse Lionel Messi. I think, I think that's the biggest yeah. uh, point to make. Like the players understand that he doesn't always have to touch the ball. We have to do more work. We need to put him in comfortable spots. He understands that he's finding the ball in different spots and, and really becoming more of an orchestrator. Uh, than, than really like the focal point of the attack. But once they start going, they start churning possession, 
teams start to get tired and they're running around, all of a sudden, boom, Messi's in the box and he's either finishing or providing an assist. So, you know, that's, that's, that's how I would describe Argentina. They can lull you to sleep because they don't mind just like state, like camping out in your side of the field and just knocking it around, knocking it around. Then suddenly they break you open with, and they have a number nine, like Latara Martinez, who is just, you know, top of his game, completely unselfish type of player. You know, he's not the pouty number nine. That's like, give me the ball. You know, he'll do the dirty work. He'll do everything and just wait for the tap in. So great team. Yeah, yeah, really, really enjoyable. And it's nice to see. I, I enjoyed that point you made about them having the kind of weight off their shoulders. It's no longer like the shirts are made out of lead. They are now, you know, <laughs> delighted to be wearing them. And you can see it in yeah, the entire team. It's, it's really nice to see. I mean, it's a similar vibe, I think, at the moment with Brazil because they are simply put, quite joyful. You know, eight goals in two games against Tunisia and Ghana. They shift personnel around. They shift player positions around. They shift the whole side around. And yet they still look more cohesive than pretty much any side on the planet. It's madness. You know, this attacking core is a deluge of ability. The defensive solidity and depth is absurd. Everyone just seems to be having a really, really good time, which I think is is, is a massive part of this. Selesau feel so, so connected at the moment. And, you know, we saw this with, you know, the responses to, to the kind of outrage with, with Vinicius Jr. and, and mm-hmm. the comments that he received and, and the, the whole squad coming out, you know, we're getting cross cross classico divides with Rafinha coming out in support, you know, a Barcelona right. player coming out in support of a Real Madrid player. It's unheard of in, in so many ways. <laughs> and this is how connected this Selesau feel. It's been a long time since I made a statement like this, but are Brazil outright favorites for this World Cup? Because I think they probably are for me. I think so. Yeah. And it's true. Even Brazil, like Brazil in the past World Cups, you weren't sure, you know, you weren't sure, like, are they, are they strong enough in, in, in every facet of the game? Uh, and this team is just like you mentioned, they are so free flowing. They look like they're unbothered by most opponents. I know that 2021 uh, Copa America final was was devastating for them to lose. It was. It really was. But since then, they've just gotten better. It's like they've gotten stronger. They've gotten more confident. They didn't lose their edge. Uh, and and let's let's. I'm going to name some of the players that did not play today <laughs> in their five one demolition of Tunisia, or at least that didn't start. Okay, Vinicius Junior did not start today. Anthony did not start. Rodrigo did not start. Mateus Cunha didn't start. Firmino didn't start today. Fabinho. Uh, Militao, who starts for Real Madrid. Uh, you know, these are some players that any nation would take. Any they, nation they would take. They didn't even bring Gabby Jesus. They didn't bring Gabby Jesus, which is which is wild. And Tite, you know, Tite did say, he's like, you know, he's not out of the picture. I want to try some more. He did, you know, the classic, yeah, I want to I want to see yeah. some. But whatever, you know, I think oh, that, that would be a big, big, big snub if he's not part of the team. But, uh, you know, defensively sound, very experienced in the back line. Marquinhos, I think, is unheralded as one of the best defenders in the world clearly one of the top top center backs in south america uh tiago silva still going you know still a guy that i would definitely count on a and fine on. wine isn't he right fine wine you know and and you know it's not like they've had issues over the years at the goalkeeper position but i think i've never seen a deeper goalkeeper pool in brazil you know they can start whoever they want and i think you're going to feel pretty good about who's there uh and of course neymar you know neymar uh, you know, I think he's a fantastic player, you know, like you can, he's easy to dislike, you know, sometimes like Messi, like, do you, do you even care right now? Like, but he is extremely talented and he is like, just like Lionel Messi, like really protected on that team. Like the team wants him to be great. 
you know, they, they love Neymar, you know, it's not like he's this cancer and like, what are we, no, they, his, his teammates love him. They want him to win. They want him to, to lift the world cup and get in that conversation as the best Brazilian player ever alongside Pelé. It's, it's, they're just so good. And I think they have one of the top managers too. Like just tactically, this is a guy that if you remove Neymar, he knows exactly how he's going to play. In fact, there are stories written, analysis written about how they're actually more adventurous without Neymar on the pitch. Uh, but I just think they have an excellent core and just a great, great manager that understands this team really well. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you were giving out a Ballon d'Or for the season so far, currently Neymar would be in possession of it. So, you know, when you've got a player in that kind of form, you, you want to rely on him and you want it, you want him to be succeeding. You want to make him a focal point because he's, he's in that kind of mood. And he usually is in this kind of mood for the, you know, for the national team, actually. Yeah. And, and, and actually, it's one of those things that, you know, you see him put on the shirt and he goes, right. I'm the man now. And mm-hmm. we haven't always seen that as PSG. We have seen it this year, I think. Um, but, I've, you know, pretty much always with National, you can see how much it means to him. And, and, and that's just something that I think makes it even, you know, more, well, it, it's something that adds to this team rather than takes away from it. Yes, you know, that's a good, that's an interesting point. Would you give, you know, Neymar the Ballon d'Or, you know, you know, perhaps, you know, everyone on that PSG team is, is, is clicking right now. Even Lionel Messi said in an interview, here you know during the the game during the week that they were in miami he's like i i just i had a tough time at psg in the, the first year now i have a different mentality like we're we're, we're together da, da, da. perhaps mbappe is the the, the the odd man out there but uh you know i agree i think neymar is just very comfortable within his own skin uh and, and like i said he knows he has a great team i mean richarlison who really put him as the stud for our for, for brazil a couple seasons ago when he was at Everton, like we, we knew he was a great, a good player, you know, but at Everton, he was still like swinging wildly and sending balls into the stands. You weren't sure where you're, he was like a wild horse that you couldn't harness. Uh, and now he, you know, he's going to be, I think he'll be their number nine, you know, on opening day in Qatar. Uh, and the depth that they have, they've always had talent. I honestly believe they've always had talent. I don't know if they've ever had even this much crazy depth i mean we haven't even we could spend a whole show talking about vinicius jr honestly and like how he has grown and matured as a very very good international player and you know i've been tweeting this for weeks now like the wing play brazil's wide players like that is i would not want to have to prepare for that and so just knowing that i don't think you can either i don't think but again jack they have a tough group that is a that is a trick i mean not even tricky i just think it's a difficult group i mean serbia top side on paper you know they don't always put it together uh but they have but they have been of late and and you have. know and another one for alexander Mitrovic tonight the man is is Did literally he? on fire 50 goals for serbia now and i think it's 50 goals in the last 48 games for club and country is a man cooking at the, the height of his form you're, you're you're welcome for for giving you that segue to bring up another Fulham player. Um, my best. Yeah, normally, I, I, normally when I'm here with Jay, uh, he, he tries to segue to Brentford quite a lot, so I'm, I'm taking advantage of the situation. Uh, Switzerland, another difficult team, a very difficult team, you know. And then I believe it's is it Cameroon? No, not yes. Cameroon. Is it Cameroon? I think it is. Uh, you know, I think Brazil handles African sides. I think they 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 did that over this window. They beat Ghana and Tunisia. I don't think that'll be a problem, but. Really, really interested to see how Brazil, how this side faces very 
traditional European footballers, you know, the, the, that, the tactical setup of a Switzerland that can give you uh, the, the quality of a Serbia side, I think they'll be very confident in what they have, but I can guarantee they're going to be very wary of not being beaten right away uh, by, by a very quick Brazil side. So uh, that is a fascinating group for me. But to answer your original question, yes, I, I feel very confident in putting, you know, essentially giving the cup to Brazil right now. They're, they're that good. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's definitely those two very much, Brazil and Argentina, the, the favourites right after me. Cameroon, by the way, have had an absolutely awful international break. Yeah, um, yeah, they lost tough. to Uzbekistan and then they lost again to South Korea today. So not been a not been a happy one for them. Um, let's finish by going quickly around the grounds, uh, just sort of looking at some different bits and bobs. France are a funny team. Sometimes they look brilliant and sometimes they look all over the place. They lost 2-0 to Denmark at the weekend, but... Probably quite interesting to note, this was such a young team that started. Badia Chile, Saliba and Upamecano started as the back three. And in front of them were Chiomeni and Kamavinga um, and Ferlon Mendy played on, on the left-hand side. All wonderful talents, mm-hmm. also all under the age of 24. Um, that is a lot of under-24s we've seen as well. We spoke about experience earlier in the show. We yeah. talked about all these different things. Is there any worries for France or is this just a bit of experimentation that didn't go to plan? And when, you know, Varane and, and the rest of the lads step back in here, things will just probably get better. I mean, I think it's a concern. Yes, you can't just say losing 2-0 to Denmark is, is not a big concern. And, and plus, every, every the, the, the drama off the field around France is just, I mean, that is a concern too. <laughs> that, that, that just won't go away. It's it's no. crazy how it's like, it's just like water. You know, it, it's it's... It happens every time. Every time you get closer to a, a World Cup, there seems to be drama. Like it will rain one day, and it'll be sunny the next for every other team. And this the downpour on top of France, the France, the French camp at a World Cup is just consistent. Um, so that that's, I think they'll handle it well. They have the experience. They have a coach in Deschamps that's been there forever, and he's going to know what to do. But you know, I don't think he's there will be any mutinies this time around. Uh, and they are world champions. You know, they still have that. Uh, you know, I, I do contend though, to your point that, you know, I think the club game is much more a younger man's game. And I still believe that the international one is one of, you need to find a balance. You know, it's not just over 35 players, you know, those guys, but that experience is so key. And you, the guys you mentioned, I mean, good God, those are excellent players playing at the top clubs in the world. Yeah. Uh, but when you're relying on them to figure out probably a very, mature Danish side, I'm going to give the edge to Denmark, honestly. Like that is a team that just, they, they know how to play, you know, they're, they're very experienced. So not a big concern, but j- there's just been too much drama around France. Honestly, that, that needs to end. They need to just focus on football, get their, their starters and their experienced players healthy and, and just play. Yeah, no, agreed. I mean, Denmark do look good, though. They're on a very they impressive do. run of form. They've got an excellent, tactically flexible manager in Kasper Hulmund and uh, an incredibly talented squad led by this remarkable story of Christian Eriksen, who somehow is playing the best football of his life. It's, they have a group that they all fancy getting out of, and it's a feel-good story that we could all get behind as well. So I think it's all all chips on the table. I am very much behind this Danish side. It's um, yeah, it's a story. <laughs> very easy to likes. root for. You're right. Very I mean, easy I- to root for. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. I did not. I did not think that 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 Ericsson would be in this stage. You know, during the years, I thought it was done. I thought it was. I was over. Like, if I were a family member, I would be telling him, "Hey, you know, just just put That's the shoes off of that." Yeah, yeah. Like, let's not go there. And just, I mean, he's like, 
clearly one of the best players on his national team and he's made a difference for Manchester United as well he's been a good signing which I and I question that one too like you know the sink is sh- the, the ship is sinking and you bring in a player that you're not sure about really and he's been great so yeah w- w- you know I agree that is a team that I would get behind any tournament yeah 100% um, Portugal played Spain this evening late winner for Alvaro Morata which always does make me smile giving Spain <laughs> their first victory in Portugal for 88 years 88 I did not know that. years 1934 the last time Spain beat Portugal in Portugal that's wow. a remarkable statistic um, it was a relatively even game both took all right Portugal were much better against the Czechs last week while Spain lost to Switzerland but my thing with Portugal is that you know, last week they were excellent. We saw Liao come out. He was he was brilliant. We saw this team look dynamic, look really important. It came to a game that was important to them in terms of actually qualifying for the final four of the Nations League. And Fernando Sanchez just returned to type. He went, right, totally. I'm going to go straight back to all the players that I know and trust. Um, I'm going to become really conservative. He's so naturally conservative anyway. Liao went back onto the bench. They lost all their dynamism and they couldn't take advantage of actually being all over Spain for quite long periods of this. You know, Spain, as you might expect, had a lot of possession, um, but it, it very much was Portugal's game to lose. And then they lost it, which is becoming a bit of a thing here. The games that they can draw to get to, you know, to get the result they, they desire or the end game they desire and they lose them late on. Um, similar, you know, in order to get to the World Cup, the Serbia game that they lost late on, it, it does feel like this is a bit of a problem, and that the natural conservatism of Fernando Sanchez is is starting to hold this Portuguese team back. And we mentioned three coaches that are under fire: in Halter, Southgate, and Martino, and Fernandez, obviously. And how many Portuguese members of the press and just fans are like, "Get him out of here!" For the last, I, I think they could I mean, win it, and they'd still want him out. Like, they would. That, that's <laughs> what I'm out. <laughs> Uh, well, let me ask you, where did Leal play against the Czech Republic? Because he played he came wide. Out, I mean, was he wide again? Okay, because he came in today um, and he played in that wide position, just again, ineffective in my opinion. Um, but the other quite, the other story here is that Fernandez, again, relies on Cristiano Ronaldo in that, in that number nine spot. Uh, you know, a, a player that can get on the field for his club, obviously an iconic player for his country and difficult to remove a captain of the team. Uh, but not enough, not enough to beat a Spain side that Portugal dominated in the first 45. It was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was like that. I was watching that and thinking Portugal is really freaking good. Like they have great players. They can put you to sleep with their possession. They're dangerous. They'll, sh- they'll, they'll take their chances on target. Um, but, the, but you know, offline, we, yesterday, you, you and I were talking about Spain, like, uh, I think they're going to be fine, like, regardless. like And they look like the type of team, if they're down the, in the first 45 or 60 minutes into the game and they're not finding themselves, like, they have solutions. And today, when that game ended on, on the broadcast, I was watching the commentator started rattling off all the teenagers that were on the field for Spain. Yeah. You know, the young players, they, all the, like, here's all the U20 players that were just on the field. And that is remarkable. That is remarkable because we're so used to seeing Spain with this veteran core of players that have played together for so long and have an identity. And, and Luis Enrique really taken a chance on these player, on these young, you know, great players, young, great players with a lot of promise have never been at a World Cup. And this is like the proof of concept for him. You know, all of the, 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 the criticism perhaps with his squad selection and look what he does in, in a huge match. Uh, away to Portugal, just a massive result. 
Yeah, yeah, a big, a big win for Lucho. Um, finally, I'm just going to move over to Germany, who haven't quite convinced me either. There's lots to like. I, I love Hansi Flick, and I genuinely believe that the Lucho and, and Flick are the two best managers going to this World Cup. There is still no real number nine. Kai Havertz did well second half here, but I'm still not 100% sure that Kai Havertz is the guy in that role I, i'm big big Havertz apologist but i oh, really? i'm just not completely convinced that he's a number nine um they were blunt against hungary and for the first half against england but it's still very difficult to bet against germany in tournament football because Always. this is what they do they get things done at this level and you look at this squad and it is still stacked with talent yeah, and they look really good in their new kits. <laughs> Let me just say, like they, they, they nice. look like really a Germany nice. side that you do not want to see at a World Cup. I mean, that was my takeaway from the, their their best moments against England. I was like, okay, like the, the, I, I see this, I see where they're what they're doing. I see what Flick is going to want to do in Qatar. I see a team that is aggressive. Uh, very disciplined, very German in their way of attacking and pushing the ball forward, pushing all their lines forward cohesively. But you're right. Like I, I, I think Kai Havertz is a very, very good player. He's very sexy on the ball. Like I love his technique. I can't believe he's a number nine for club and country. I just can't believe it. Like it's not working in my opinion. Um, and, and it's strange for Germany to not have that go-to goal scorer. I mean, that that's one them world cups in the past. Uh, and, and that's my only, it's your point that that's the red, that's like, I guess the concern, not even a red flag It's just, will they be able to score goals when they really need them? Is Timo Werner your solution there? Like, I, I don't, I don't know. You know, I don't think that's the guy that you want to rely on either, but uh yeah, they haven't impressed. I mean, the, the 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 coverage of the team is one of like look at look at everything we have and look look what we're not getting from the team. Uh, I don't think that's as much of a concern as the other concerns we've talked about with the other countries because yeah. I think once they get to the tournament, they're going to be okay. Fine. But um, but yeah, it is an interesting uh, it is an interesting profile of striker that Flick is also relying on and keeping a player like Havertz there. Maybe he doesn't have the solution though. I mean. And if they don't, you know, perhaps that is a problem. But I don't want to see Germany ever in a World Cup. You know, like I just to your point, like what does Germany do? They do. What is the joke about Germany? They just they 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 just figure out like one nil to Germany is the score. No matter what where you are in the game, uh, just a tough out every time. I think the uh, the famous quote is uh, football's a simple game. 22 men chase a ball around a pitch for uh, for, for 90 minutes. And in the end, the Germans win. Germans win. There it is. There it is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, it does feel like that. Look, Jamal Musiala is there and he's Bayern's top scorer. So actually might all be all right in the night after all. Um, but with that, it's probably time for us to call it a day here on the Athletic Soccer Show. We hope you've enjoyed our roundup, the big stories across the international slate. All that's left for me to do is say thank you all for listening. And thank you to Felipe Cardenas for joining me to walk through all of this it's been a whole lot of fun it's been awesome it's been awesome have me back again jack i'll take, I would love I'll take to. the invite i would love to i've been jack collins this has been your international break review and we'll see you very soon thanks for tuning in